The views on this podcast belong uniquely and solely to the mouths from which they emanate. All it takes is one person to shift that perception and you can change the trajectory. And it's so much easier to do before you lose your last speakers. Hi, and welcome to the Weekly Linguist Podcast. I am Jarrett Allen, and um, today we are finishing up our interview with Judy Maxwell. I know we said there would only be two episodes with Judy, but in the end, it wasn't meant to be. We were able to edit out large portions of the interview to get it down to our desired length, but we just were unwilling to take out the really good stuff, and there was a lot of it. So, we have a third episode. You know, I have to admit, there has been a learning curve in starting this podcast. Editing is not straightforward or simple to an amateur, and we aren't working with expensive equipment. So, we ask your patience on the editing and the sound quality, and we hope we're improving in that regard. Also, we have decided to make our episodes a little shorter than we had originally planned, but, you know, we're in this for the long haul, and uh, we will do our best to make this podcast informative and interesting, and we hope to continuously be improving. The good news is, I think you're going to like this episode. We start this episode by talking to Judy about how languages encode human knowledge and worldviews. And then we get into a a particular debate that happened a few years ago about the autonomy of a language community and its agency to decide whether or not they're going to speak their language, whether they are free to do that or not. Um, We talk about heritage communities and heritage languages. We discuss these terms extinct, dead, and sleeping when talking about endangered languages. And we talk about community buy-in, which is an absolutely necessary element of language maintenance and revitalization. And then we finish by talking about the power of a single person to make a difference. Next week, we talk to Anthony Grant about Lexico Statistics. Uh, There will probably be a part two to that interview as well. Then we finally begin talking about the languages of the world which is the object of this podcast, by talking to David Gill at Max Planck about syntactic categories and Indonesian. You know, I also recently had the immense pleasure of interviewing Dr. Karen Rice at the University of Toronto about the Diné languages and about community-based research. And we've got some really cool episodes coming up for you after that as well. So make sure that you subscribe to the podcast Remember that all the references mentioned in each episode can be found on the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. Just go to the website, click Episodes, and navigate, in this particular case, to Episode 4. All right, here we go. The conclusion to our inaugural interview with Judy Maxwell. Judy, a friend of mine asked me one time, um, talking about the desire to maintain languages, And, you know, this is a common question, you know, why don't we just let languages die? Why do we go out and study languages as linguists? Why do we document languages as linguists? And I get this question a lot. And and I admit I've asked myself this question, especially sitting in in language death class and talking about it. One of the, um, the obvious reasons is because language encodes human knowledge. And uh, I was trying to explain to a friend and I had to 
I had to, I made up an example, but if you have uh, a, a people that live in an area where like, let's say they live in the forest or the jungles and they have very, and they know the particular plants very, 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 very well. And they might call this one the, the, uh, the, the cough healing plant, or they might call this other one over here, the, the sweet plant or the, the, the ant retardant plant or whatever. And they encode the names of these plants. And I'm making this example up obviously, but they encode human knowledge into these so that if you have somebody else or another group that comes in and becomes a language killer, then they don't have that knowledge and you lose the human knowledge by losing that language. So the, the question is, how does language encode human knowledge and why is it important to, to, to document these languages and to make sure that we don't lose them? First of all, let me say that the, the, light, the example that you gave and examples like that are uh, really uh, used a lot. And for example, in Harrison's uh, textbook on when languages die, uh, he tries to make this argument that you're going to lose all this information when the languages go. Um, but, and he gives some very compelling examples in, in that. Uh, but, you know, as you say, part of the way the knowledge is encoded is lexical. But it isn't just... I have, a, I have a word for this and you don't have a word for this, so you can't talk about it. That doesn't really work because I can just borrow your, your word, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'll have that word too. So a lexical example isn't, isn't that compelling. Okay. And because languages borrow lexicon all the time. But you also encode the world view. And the worldview shows up in many different ways. So uh, an example that I find uh, very powerful, I don't know how it'll work here, but for example, you take uh, Kachikel, just to take a language at random. <laughs> so if you take, you take Kachikel, some nouns get uh, an inflected plural. So they get a mark put on the noun itself that says that it's plural. And other nouns don't take a plural mark. And if you really, really, really want to say that it's plural, uh, you can use this little word tak, which goes on the front of it, uh, like an adjective that says you've got more than one of them. Uh, So an example is if you're talking about a person, if I'm talking about you, and I want to say you are a man, I would say rat at achin, you are a man. But if there were more of you, not... You know, more men, then I would say rish, ish, achi, ah. And so achin has become achi, ah. It has this ah suffix on it. And ishok, ishoki, woman, women. They get, the people get this extra morpheme put on the end of it, like the S in English, that says this is plural. But most nouns don't get that. So if I wanted to talk about a table, it's chatal. If I had 10 tables, then it would still be chatal. It would be lahuk, 10, chatal, 10 tables. And chairs, chakut, lahuk, chakut, 10, 10 chairs. They don't change. So there is this, 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 
this hierarchy of animacy because it's not just people. So for example, if I wanted to talk about uh, one coyote, it would be utiu. If I wanted to talk about a bunch of coyotes, it would be utiwa. If I want to talk about one bunny rabbit, it would be umur. I wanted to talk about a bunch of bunnies, umuli, right? Uh, but not all animals. So remember, remember that utiuf, coyote, gets a plural, but it dog, doesn't. So even though they're both canids, one of them gets a plural and one doesn't. So you have to actually know how the animals are viewed within the culture, how anything is viewed within the culture. So the really neat example, I think, is chumil, which means star. So if we're in uh, a Western kind of astronomy class and we're talking about great flaming balls of gas that are light years away, then we talk about tak chumil. There are a bunch of stars. But if I wanted to talk about chumil to mean this active animate force that has influence on your life, it does things like predict your destiny, say what you're going to be good at. Then I've talking about those stars, I would say chumila. So you can tell the difference between how I'm looking at this entity. Am I looking at it as uh, an animate being with influence, with power, or am I looking at it as just a bunch of uh, atoms that are interacting in cosmic space? So the worldview is encoded within the structure of the language. So uh, many authors have written about forced grammatical cho choices, those things that the grammar of the language makes you look for, for you to be able to speak it. So these are much less conscious, much less obvious than a lexical item. Because like I say, a lexical item is easily exported or imported. But your way of viewing the world, it's encapsulated through your grammar. You actually need to be able to speak the grammar to know how those things show up. You know, so an example from Tunica, which is, you know, so, Tunica has so many lovely things. And one of the lovely things it's got is if you're talking about animals, right? I know where you're so, going. <laughs> yes. So if you, if you have like one duck, that's, a, that's masculine. If you have two ducks, they're still masculine. But once you get three ducks or more ducks, they're suddenly feminine, right? Yes. You got to love that. <laughs> and uh, if you have, you want to you talk about Right? The weather is great. Want to talk about the weather? The weather is caused by two beings, right? Sun woman and thunder boy. And if thunder boy causes it, then the endings on it are all going to be masculine because it's thunder boy. But if sun woman is doing it, then you're going to get feminine endings because she's doing it. So there are some verbs that both of them can do, but they mean different things. So if you have Mira uh, and Thunderboy does it, you would say Mira, he, and that would mean he lightened, he caused lightning, right? Mira. But if you, if 
if a sun woman does it, then you have Mirati, and that means she chased the clouds away. Right. Right? It's the same verb, but you get put a different gender ending. You understand that different beings did it, and so it has a different action in the world. And that, you, you got to be able to speak the language to understand that. I remember uh, we were doing one of the immersions for the Tunica kids, and they were all kinds of lost because they couldn't figure out how rain and drizzle and everything were getting masculine endings. But for the sun to come up or go down, the shower were getting feminine endings. And I stopped and explained about Sun Woman and Thunder Boy. And this little girl looked up at me and said, really? And I said, yes, Kashimeka, truly. And because that explains how the system works, right? So, uh, yes, knowledge is encapsulated in lexical items, but it's there structurally in the language, too. Well, I have two more questions in really quick. Recently, um, I was looking as we were talking because I was trying to remember, you know, my memory is bad. Um, I guess this was in the early 2000s, the first decade of the 2000s. There was an argument. There was a discussion uh, in the in the field between the likes of like your Mifwanis and your Latifogans. And um, and then also people on the other side, like Krauss and Dorian and all of these. And the idea was that um, people ought to have the autonomous choice to shift away from their language, that it's not the end of the world if a language is lost because people can do what they want to do with something that belongs to them. And that sparked a, a pretty little debate um, about the, the role of the linguist in attempting to revitalize or save languages. And um, I, I wanted you to comment on that for a second. What, what about this idea that this is our language if we want to shift to Cebuano? Why shouldn't we be able to? Thankfully, nobody in Bantayan has ever said that to me. But, you know, there is this idea that it's our choice. It's our language. We can do what we want. Right. Well, as you know, I've written an article called Whose Language Is It Anyway? Mm -hmm. uh, absolutely. It's up to the people whose heritage language it is, not only what they want to do with the language, but how they want it to be expressed and if they want it to be open to outsiders or not. For example, the Hopi, Hopi uh, by and large still speak their language. Uh, they tend to remain in their traditional land, although some do go away and get higher education and come back. They have the highest return rate of people with PhDs of any indigenous groups. Um, and they speak Hopi. And they don't really want non-Hopis to speak Hopi, right? right? So it's their language. They get to make the decisions. And, for example, in Tunica's, we work, we, when we're making things visible in the dictionary, and this dictionary is available, uh, you can get it from Google Play. So it's not something that's just for tribal members. But there is information that non-tribal members can't see because there is information that's proprietal. This is something about our culture that you don't have a right to and you don't have access to. And it's definitely up to the members of the community, not only what they want to do with their language as a whole, but 
how much they want to be to share with other people. You know, um, now other other groups would be delighted if the whole world, like the the Kachikel that I work with, they would be delighted if the whole world spoke Kachikel, and they were willing to teach you and work with you to be fluent in their language because it gives them great joy to have other people interested in and speaking their language. But uh, it's definitely up to the community. And I think we really need to examine Mufwene's argument that a people should be allowed to quit speaking their language if they want to. But you have to look at why they want to quit speaking their language. Right. right it's not right. like they have equal access to everything and uh, just decide, well, I don't, I don't like glottalized buzz. And so I'm <laughs> going to quit speaking my language. They are tr being giving up on their languages because their language doesn't give them access to education. It doesn't give them access to a high paying job, or it continues to keep them from being able to uh, move outside their communities to train. And so, so, but because these are legitimate concerns, then it's not really a free choice. Is what you're it's saying. not a free choice. Right. They have been discriminated against. They have in some cases been actively uh, killed off on the basis of language. And certainly if I'm going to get killed because I speak this language, I'm going to speak something else, assuming I want to still live. Right. right. So that's not a free choice. Certainly you have a choice, but you shouldn't be forced to speak another language in order to get medical treatment. You shouldn't be forced to speak another language in order to be able to have your day in court. Right. Right. And so it isn't a free choice. That, that, that's, a, that's totally false. Now, there are cases, for example, uh, Leanne Hinton has noticed this with uh, Breath of Life uh, workshops in California where she tried to set up master apprentice learning programs where you have a native speaker elder who is going to work with a younger speaker and they were put them in apartments and they signed an agreement that, you know, during the 24 hours or the 48 hours that they were going to be in this apartment together, they would only use uh, the indigenous language. And they were facilitated by having the things in the department, they put little labels on them. So, they made up a word for like television and put that word, stuck that word to the TV and they made up a word for coffee maker and put it on the coffee maker. And several groups of elders said that they would not participate under those conditions because they said, this isn't our language. It doesn't interest us to teach uh, English that's re-lexified as, as, uh, our language. We don't want to teach Ohloni uh, that is just English in disguise. So if, if you change our language in this way, we don't want to speak it. We just assume not have it spoken as have it spoken poorly in this way. And that's their right. They have the right to say no. The difficulty with that is and I'm segueing really well into my next question. The difficulty with that is there's a sense in which if a generation decides to make that decision, they make it for all future generations. You don't give a whole lot of generations in the future the ability 
to say, okay, we disagree with them. Let's just start speaking the language again. Why? Because we have this idea, and I want to talk about this word, languages die, or they go sleeping, or they go extinct. So in a sense, you know, you could say that a language is completely extinct if we know nothing about it. We have no recorded history of it. We, we Nobody remembers having it ever spoken. It can be extinct. But is a language that's still in some shape, form, or fashion in human memory ever really dead or extinct? The issue is if there's still a heritage community that identifies with that language. Because if there is, I mean, dead isn't as bad as extinct. Extinct is like dinosaurs. Wesley Leonard, who is a Miamia uh, native linguist, noted that when he was a child and he read about Miamia, he read about his group and it said the language was extinct, that hurt him as a child to say, you know, we're like the dinosaurs. It suggests that you're no longer relevant to the modern world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't think dead is as bad as extinct, but sleeping is definitely gentler, right? Because that suggests that you can wake up. Right. Now, of course, it would be more convincing if more languages had woken up. Right. Uh, so we have a very few cases of uh, languages that have woken up. And Just for our audience information, we have Hebrew. We have uh, the, uh, the the two examples in the British Isles that you were talking about earlier. And Manx. Manx is a, Manx. Is a great uh, example. In many ways, Manx is better than Hebrew because Hebrew was never not spoken. Right. It had a, like a repository within the religious sphere. But Manx had no native speakers, and it came back. You know, that's a, so Manx is like the poster child, right? But as we as we know, it takes it's really hard. It's really hard for one person to learn another language, and it's really hard for a whole community to learn another language and bring it back to the level where they're comfortable using it every day. So much so that some activists like Wesley Leonard, since I've already brought him into this, he suggests that we shouldn't set speaking the language every day and having it having conversational fluency as a goal. Because if you set that as a goal and then you fail to achieve it after some reasonable amount of time, then people who are working on it can feel defeated. They can feel that they haven't had success. So he suggests we talk about reclamation, where we bring it back and integrate the culture. That's like we talked earlier about how the worldview and the culture is encapsulated in the language. Bring back that worldview and then make it relevant to your life. Then as you do culturally appropriate things, it's now relevant to you in in ways, and you can see that you can see that as a victory. You've done this. This is now part of your life, and the tunica, of course, are working on those things as well. I will just point out that if you're starting a language revitalization project, however however it, the impetus for it comes, the first step is working with the community in the community for the community to decide what they want to do with their language. And there's so many things that you can do. One is just to be emblematic. 
to bring back a core set of vocabulary that you can throw into your hegemonic language speech that identifies you as indigenous. This is the choice that was made by the Rama in Nicaragua, uh, the urban Rama, because what they call the jungle Rama still speak their language, but the urban Rama no longer spoke it. And when they hired a linguist, they hired Colette Craig to come and work with them. They decided that they were just going to go with bringing back enough so that they can use some words. They didn't seek to be able to use it every day and bring it back in all contexts and all domains. They just wanted to have these markers that say, yes, I am Rama. I am indigenous. So that's one thing to do. And it's really, it's kind of a, a low bar. That's pretty easy to do. You know, you can learn a bunch of really easy vocabulary. So you can learn to say, Etimalapu, Lapu, Mahat, you know, how are you, my friend? Oh, I'm good. And you? Uh, you, can, you can learn a few routines, and it sounds like you know something about your language, and, and that just says, look, I'm tunic, and I can use these words. Um, so uh, that, that's an easy place to go. Uh, it, then you could decide that you want to bring it back in certain domains. So uh, you might say, I need to be able to do prayers. This was one of the first domains that we targeted for Tunica because Tunica representatives to Uset, which is uh, United Southeastern Tribes uh, of the United States, uh, was to do prayer because all of the council meetings are initiated with a prayer. And the other members of uh, Uset were able to give prayers in their languages, in Choctaw, in uh, Chitimacha, and various other languages. Uh, but the Tunica could not. But now they can. They have uh, many prayers that we uh, worked on together, and people are now fluent enough that they can give spontaneous prayer. Uh, so you can target domains and bring back the language within those domains. Another easy, fairly easy one is songs because songs are catchy you put the words to them so we have easier songs. to remember the words if you've got the melody in your head yeah yep. and you know we have a, a set of traditional songs because Sosostri Uchigant was able to um, remember traditional songs and Mary Haas was able to uh, record them and even though uh, the words on the CD are garbled you can still hear the melody and you can see her transcription. So we, we have a number of traditional Tunica songs. And in addition to that, we have new Tunica songs that uh, the working group has been able to compose. So uh, you have uh, like Christmas songs. We have a whole uh, songbook of Tunica Christmas songs. We have birthday songs. We have tribal recognition songs. And then, of course, there are the powwow songs. And so songs are another domain that's easy to go there. But the Tunica didn't set, you know, these, they weren't content to just have these little pockets. They actually set the bar. We want to bring back conversational Tunica. Well, I want to close on that because something that you said earlier really struck a chord with me. And I, Basically, you have to have community buy-in. And this is something that I'm going to be talking to Karen Rice about 
because as you know, I'm very interested in um, community-based research, collaborative research. But I guess it kind of goes without saying, but you really have to think about it. Not only do you have to have people wanting to speak the language, you actually have to sit down and they have, there has to be a plan. There has to be funding. There has to be um, uh, objectives, goals set reasonably, like you said. And without a significant portion of the community buying in, so to speak, in this, it's a no-go. It's not even, it's a no-starter. I mean, so basically, you're, you're, you're the very first thing that you have to do in a, in a project like this is to make sure that the community buys in. Otherwise, it's fruitless. It's pointless. As a matter of fact, it was um, it was um, Donna, if I remember correctly, who basically had the caught the vision, and and convinced people to join her in this vision. I don't know if I've expressed that correctly, but she caught the vision, and the community bought in because of the passion that one person had to be to 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 do this. But uh, but in the end, the community's desires and wishes not only on how you do it, but if you're going to do it and it's, it's preeminent. I don't want to blah. I don't want to go on and on and on about it because I could, but it's preeminent. The the community's desires and wishes. Right. I think language revitalization is one of those places where you can see exactly what you were saying, that if you have one person with the passion well-placed, and of course they have to be in a position where they can affect change, Mm -hmm. that one person can really, motivate people to make the effort because it takes a great effort to to bring a language back this is a place where you see individuals you can point to an individual person as you did to donna who brought it back you can you for uh miamia it's daryl baldwin point to him you know if you want to talk about blackfoot it's daryl kip you can point to individuals and say these are the people if you want to um jesse little doe uh, for Wampanoag, you point to individual people. These are the people that are giving their life to the language, and other people are swept along by their energy and by their desire. And as they learn the language, they get that boost of self-confidence, positive self-image, which all goes again to strengthen then this idea of identity which is really necessary to underpin the language and give it something to work with. And I'll just point out, I went to a conference at the University of Hawaii at Manoa several years ago now, and it was a conference on uh, documentation and conservation. And at this conference, there were only two groups. Uh, there were the, that were working on revitalization. There was the Miwok group from California, and there was the Tunica group from here in Louisiana. And everyone else was worked working on conservation and documentation. So it's like you were saying, you've got the last speakers. They're not going to change their language. And so that it doesn't just die when they die, document as much as you can. Record it. Write things down. Do film. Do whatever you can to have resources for future generations. But I spoke to the indigenous people who were involved in those efforts, and every single one of them was sad. They were really 
lamenting the passing of their language that they could they felt they couldn't stop it they couldn't stop it going and you know and i wanted to say you don't have to give up especially now you still have speakers you can work right now not just to put this in some archive somewhere so that somebody 20 years from now can make an attempt at bringing it back you can do something right now and a lot of this has to do with exactly something that you were talking about before. Oh, I never thought that I could use Bantayon for this. Oh, I didn't thought that th- thought I didn't think that I could bring this uh, into my daily use. You know, all it takes is one person to shift that perception, and you can change the trajectory. And it's so much easier to do before you lose your last speakers. Dude, that's a that's a great point. I had um, I never I never thought about it that way. Some of these that are working so hard to document, why don't you you work on some revitalization as well? Yeah. But that's a great way to end this podcast, Judy. Thanks for playing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Inside joke, Jody. Judy. Jody. Judy ends her lectures by saying, "Thanks for playing," and tells us to do our homework at our copious free time. <laughs> So we love, Judy, thank you very much. And um, I'm going to leave this in the podcast here, but believe me, I am working on my dissertation. It is making progress and it will be to you soon. Although I think I've been giving a little bit of grace having uh, by, by my current employer having to had go through COVID and a hurricane and everything else. So I think they're going to give me an extra year, but my plan is not to take it, but Judy, I appreciate it. Thank you for doing this. I knew you wouldn't say no to me, and I appreciate everything. And one of these <laughs> I'm days, I'm going to start practicing saying no. <laughs> you can't. You wouldn't be. You wouldn't be you. You wouldn't be you. Hi. Okay. <clears throat> and also remember to check out the show notes at weeklylinguist.com. There you will find further information about this episode. Like more information about the guest, a selected bibliography, and any links mentioned in this episode. As the saying goes, if you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend. If you didn't, tell us. You can tell a friend by rating us five stars on iTunes and by writing a glowing endorsement in the reviews. Don't forget to subscribe when you're done and follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Weekly Linguist. For any feedback, positive or critical, (laughs) write to us at podcast at weeklylinguist.com tell us what you think what we can do better or even suggest a topic a topic for an upcoming episode